Hello, and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, we'll speak with William Porter, author of Alcohol Explained, a book that explains how alcohol affects human beings on a chemical, physiological, and psychological level, from those first drinks right up to chronic alcoholism. Alcohol Explained by William Porter. William, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, John. Well, you know, I just read your book not too long ago, and it's not often that I pick up a book that I can't put down, but I read your book all in one sitting. I liked it so much because it was um, explaining um, alcohol addiction from really a scientific perspective, but also from personal experience. I found that really valuable, and I wanted to talk to you. So could you perhaps share with us a little bit of your personal background and what led you to write the book? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I started drinking when I was about 14, and I, I suppose the culture, I suppose it's a bit of a thing in the US and the UK, it's a binge drinking culture, it tends to be a fairly heavy drinking culture um it's seen as kind of macho isn't it to drink loads so i was kind of brought up on that you know you work hard during the week and then you get to drink hard at the weekend um so i always drank fairly heavily and that sort of plodded on for a while and i went to university and i decided i wanted to become a lawyer so what you do in the uk to become a lawyer you you do your course at university and then you try and get a training contract and that's where you work for two years before you qualify and it's very hard to get a training contract so a lot of people while they're looking for a training contract paralegal and paralegaling is fairly boring to put it frankly yeah. it's photocopying and document reviewing and all the rest of it so yeah. I started looking around while I was paralegaling for something to do outside of you know my spare time to make life a bit more interesting um, and I ended up for various reasons joining the reserve battalion of the parachute regiment uh-huh. Um, so that was that was all very good, and again, that's a you know fairly macho, hard drinking culture. Sure. Um, and my drinking continued and got progressively heavier, and then I was mobilised and sent out to Iraq. Um, and that kind of I think that was a, a massive accelerator for me because mm-hmm. before I went, you have a couple of months build up training, and that's interspersed with quite long leaves just to you know give people a bit of time with their family and all the rest of it. Um, and as you can imagine, I was fairly nervous about going out there and I was drinking heavily and more and more heavily. And it was also, we were told there was no alcohol out there. It was a dry policy because right. it's a dry country, supposedly. So I kind of had at the back of my mind, well, it really doesn't matter how much I drink before I go because I'm going to be out there with no alcohol for a few months. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I can dry out. So I was waking up in the morning, you know, nervous about going. And first thing I was doing was going to the drinks cabinet, making a coffee and tossing it up with a, you know, a splash of whatever spirit was handy and basically spending the whole time drinking. Um, and then I went out there and the first three months were fine. I was still sobered up. And then I went back for two weeks leave, um, drank almost constantly for those two weeks, went back again and dried out again and then came back again. And the other side of it, you get two months decompression leave at the end of it. Okay. So I literally came back from Iraq and had two months. Um, and as you can imagine, you're catching up with friends and celebrating all the rest of it. So sure. again, that was back to fairly constant drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went back to work. I qualified at this point as a lawyer. Um, and the drinking just got heavier and heavier. I got married, had children, and it got completely out of hand. And then I stopped 
about three years ago, just over three years ago. Okay. So that was that's that's the sort of the drinking background, and I suppose the background to the book is I've always been fairly practical and inquisitive, and I remember going back right back to when I was at university in my early twenties, and I found that when I was going out drinking, I'd get really bad insomnia. So I, you know, I'd fall asleep for a few hours and I'd wake up in the early hours of the morning after usually four or five hours of sleep and then just couldn't get back to sleep again. So I sort of trotted up the medical library and started reading into it. Oh. This was the days, obviously, before the before the internet got really big. You can right. just sit down and Google stuff. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, as I continued drinking, I continued sort of looking into things and researching it and slowly piecing knowledge together. Uh-huh. And it just sort of grew and grew. Um, and at one point, I, I sort of a couple of times started going to AA. Okay. And I kind of, when I, when I started going to AA, I was sort of hoping for loads of information. Mm-hmm. I'd sort of been piecing together alcohol and how it all fits together, but there was just massive amounts I just didn't know about and didn't understand, as you know, as is normal, I think. Right. Um, and I kind of went there expecting it to be a repository of knowledge. And it was a bit of a shock to find mm. it was more the spiritual side of it. Right. And a lot of personal stories. But I found often I'd be sat in AA meetings and people would be saying, you know, I you know, always found I'd be really drunk and I would want another drink and I didn't understand why or mm-hmm. there was this aspect of drinking and I didn't understand it. And I'd be thinking, actually, I've got a fairly good idea of the mechanics behind right. it. Right. And I started to think that could help people uh-huh. um, and then after after I stopped drinking and I kind of it started to weigh on my mind a bit that there were people and there's some people that if you go to AO meetings you sort of meet people who are fairly in a bad way and it kind of they sort of haunt you somehow and yeah. I'd often think to myself maybe if they knew what I know knew that knowledge could help them right. and that was really what sort of prompted me to write the book in the end I sort of avoided it for quite a long time because it was such a huge undertaking but eventually I sort of thought to myself look it's if you've got something that can help people it's not you can't just sit on it right so I thought I'll write it and put it out there and then it's out there and at least my conscience is clear, clear so frankly and was it actually useful. researching the sleeping problem that led you into the research about alcohol because I know in your book you actually talk about how alcohol itself interrupts our sleeping yeah that's right yeah that's it absolutely yeah it was I mean that that's one piece of the jigsaw puzzle frankly yeah. and yeah I mean that that was the earliest thing I remember actually researching but as I say as the years went by I just sort of looked up more and more about it and sort yeah. of slowly it, it, I, I never at any point sat down and thought right yeah I'm going to make it my life's work to find out everything there is to know about alcohol it was more just and I guess we all do it as human beings we yeah. try and make sense of what's going on to us well I wanted and to I understand it when I first quit drinking um, the first thing I did, or one of the first things I did, was go to the library and try to get as many books as I could to try to understand okay. it. Yeah. I think it's natural. But in AA, you're right. What I wasn't getting there was more of a mystery. It was more like some sort of a spiritual mystery. It was not n- necessary to even know or inquire, basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That was it. So um, based from your book, from from what I read, which I found really interesting, and I wanted to talk to you about it a little bit, was the whole idea that, if I understood stood your, your thesis correctly, is that anyone can become addicted to alcohol. It's not necessarily just a select group of people who are subject to this disease, but rather anyone who drinks enough for a long enough period of time can become addicted. Is that pretty much my, is that yeah, the correct understanding? It. Yeah, that's certainly one part of it. And I 
think, you know, a lot of people will, you know, be tutting or scratch, scratching their heads and thinking, no, 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 that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I do say is, and another, and this sort of touches on this as well, I say everyone who drinks has alcohol withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So even your very first drink, even somebody who's, you know, you wouldn't in the least consider alcoholic, they have alcohol withdrawal. Um, and, you know, that's a difficult concept to understand. Mm-hmm. But what led me on to that one of the strange anomalies with drinking we sort of take it for granted that we build up a tolerance to alcohol so whatever your view on whether alcoholism is genetic or not i think everyone accepts that any drinker on the planet they build up a tolerance right so you don't drink the same amount you know anyone they you know the first time you go out to parties and you have one or two beers any more than that you probably start being sick but years down the line you can you know you can drink that with no problem at all Right. And what it helps, I think, to focus the mind a bit is if you think, what is that physical difference? If you get, and I, I know I mentioned Richard Burton in the book, he was mm-hmm. at one point apparently drinking three to four bottles of spirits a day. Right. Three to four bottles of spirits would kill anyone who had never had a drink before, regardless of whether you think they are a genetic alcoholic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ask people just to think about for a moment. What is the difference between, say, if you could take a hypothetical Richard Burton who had never drunk, and one who is drinking three to four bottles of spirits a day. The one who's drinking can, I mean, he's not going to be particularly buoyant after three to four bottles of spirits, <laughs> but he, he can live through it. Yeah. The other one would be dead drinking that. Yeah. So just to stop and think, what is the physical difference between the two? And people then sort of often scratch their heads and no oh, one thought of that. But and the common answer people sort of come up with is, oh, the you know the liver gets a bit stronger. Well, that's not the case. The liver is not a muscle can't exercise it and no. make it stronger if you drink it gets weaker you right. can damage it and to a certain degree if you stop drinking it will repair itself but it will never be stronger than it was originally mm-hmm. and the difference is that your brain creates a stimulant to counter the depressant effects of the alcohol and when i'm talking about a depressant here i'm talking about something that reduces nerve activity i'm talking about it in its chemical sense oh okay so you put a depressant in your body and your brain will try and counter it your brain is filled with different hormones and drugs and chemicals and that's what keeps you alive it's a constant balancing act right um so that's basically what happens now there's a limited amount as you can imagine it's not an infinite supply of these drugs and hormones but the more your brain uses them the more it will create uh-huh. So over the years of drinking, your brain will be able to create more of these stimulants to counteract the alcohol. Right. So, that... so that's how it works, basically. That's how you build up a tolerance. That is the tolerance to alcohol. So but... anybody who drinks from your very first drink, it's a, um, the, the drug alcohol is a depressant. So immediately your body or your brain um, produces these, these stimulant chemicals. Yeah, they're in your brain anyway, but in okay. very small quantities. So one or two beers, it will release a bit, and then any more than that hasn't got enough. Okay. So then next time, it makes slightly more, slightly more, slightly more. But of course, when the alcohol is removed from your system, the stimulants remain for some time afterwards. And that produces and that's anxiety. Why, that's the anxiety, exactly. That feeling of sort of feeling out of sorts and slightly anxious and getting the shakes and all the rest of it, the accelerated heart rate. Right. That is the stimulants left over. And of course, the longer you're drinking for, the more stimulants you have left in you. Right. And the more of a problem it becomes. And I then mean, you when learn I was... that you can drink to overcome that anxiety. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, that's the key. I mean, if you wake up feeling anxious because because basically, if you think about it, your body's running fine. Mm-hmm. You introduce a depressant, so your brain counts it with a stimulant. Mm-hmm. 
So then you're at a certain level there, but then the alcohol wears off and you're overstimulated. So then you take the alcohol and that puts you on a bit more of an even keel because that's countering the stimulants. Right. So that's why if you wake up with a thinking hangover and have a drink, you immediately feel lots better. There's other aspects to it as well. If you've got a headache and you feel sick, alcohol being an anaesthetic will take edge off that as well. But the main benefit of it is it's removing that overstimulation from the previous drink. And if you do it long enough, am I right? Did I understand correctly from what your research was that if you do it long enough, your body will start to expect that you're go- that it's going to start getting alcohol and it will begin releasing those stimulating yeah, chemicals? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, I, if, for example, every time you drink, you have 10 drinks, then your brain gets used to having those 10 drinks and it will release stimulants to counter those 10 drinks. If you then try and moderate and have two drinks, the brain will still release the stimulants because for the last however many years it's used to having a certain amount of alcohol, the equivalent of 10 drinks. So it's releasing, flooding you with stimulants. I mean, I had a a situation once where I went out for a business lunch um, and I had sort of a bottle of wine, maybe a bit more at the lunch and I went back to the office expecting an easy afternoon or the rest of it. And of course, typically something kicked off. Mm-hmm. couldn't get out of it so I was stuck in the office running around and got home not late late but fairly late and I kind of thought to myself wow I didn't drink this afternoon and whenever I went out for you know a boozy lunch I would always drink afterwards mm-hmm. and I thought well look I'll take the opportunity go to bed not drink and not have a hangover the next day but I <laughs> lay in bed and just couldn't sleep which is very unusual for me I usually get off to sleep no problem at all and what it was, my brain was just used to far more amounts of alcohol flooding my system throughout the day and into the evening. So it was releasing these stimulants. And there yeah. was me wide awake, unable to sleep. Yeah. And that's the thing. That, and that's why moderation becomes impossible. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Just based upon my memory of what my drinking was like at the time. And even from what I know <laughs> in AA, if you if you look at the what, what those guys discovered back in the 30s was, at least Dr. Silkworth, he would say that, we drink essentially because of the effect. We like the effect produced by alcohol. Yeah. And then it talks about that phenomenon of craving. But all that phenomenon of craving really is, from what, from what, from what I understand in your book, is basically the stimulants that are kicking in because our body is expecting more alcohol that we've been giving it. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that initial so-called buzz that you get from alcohol, it, it's purely because it's a depressant. And we tend to have it sort of at the end, certainly when we're starting, we have it at the end of the day. We've, you know, we've been working all day, we're either in an office situation where you're potentially getting stressed and you've got those naturally occurring stimulants in your body just buzzing around or we're physically working. If you're a labourer, you come home tired and alcohol is a depressant. Right. So you're feeling slightly stressed from the office or tired from the building site. You have a drink and it dampens the tiredness. It dampens down that, that feeling of, you know, over, um, stress from the office or whatever and it dampens it down and that's really what the the main benefit of alcohol is right is that depressing effect right and you know it's kind of interesting i never i always used to think about the depressing effect as actually making us making us feel emotionally depressed but that's not necessarily what you're talking about you're talking no yeah just just to be absolutely clear on that when i'm talking about the depressive and anesthetizing effect of alcohol i'm talking about it purely on a chemical physiological point of view in that the effect of alcohol on any living creature is to essentially depress nerve activity. Gotcha. So when your nerves are there saying, I've had a hard day at the building site, I'm tired, or your Uh nerves are saying, I've had an argument, I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm blah, 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 you have a drink and it just takes the edge off those. Gotcha. It It gives you that calming, relaxing effect. Exactly, yeah. And obviously the key one there is if you've also been drinking the night before, you've got the stimulants making you feel out of sorts and anxious from the previous drinking. Okay. So that's where the, the benefit, the supposed, the, the illusion of the benefit, if you like, of drinking alcohol comes in. 
Okay. So you think it's beneficial to understand this, and I kind of think it is too. And you wrote in your book that that you had some concerns about the disease concept of alcoholism. Um, you yeah. want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, it goes back to I think what I was saying before. If you can accept that anyone who drinks has a tolerance to alcohol, then the logical conclusion is they will have the withdrawal. And when I'm talking about the withdrawal, I'm talking about the stimulants left in your system. Mm-hmm. After it's gone, and if you just increase drinking, increase drinking, increase drinking, the stimulants increase, 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 that feeling turns from feeling a bit perky and awake to, you know, really feeling out of sorts and anxious and depressed, and that leads to yeah. all the depression. Um, and that's, that is true for every human being. Yeah. If you could show me a human being who could drink alcohol every day for 20 years and not be able to take any more than they had on their first day, then I can accept they probably <laughs> wouldn't have an increase. Um, withdrawal from it but the very fact that they can drink more the only reason they can drink more is because of the increased stimulants going in to counter it and they are left over with every with everyone and the concern was too that and i kind of could relate to this from my own experience because i was pretty young when i first quit drinking and so Mm. i would i would look at uh, alcoholism as 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 a disease i guess and say well i just Mm. don't have it i'm just too damn young that's a certain type of person. I don't know any alcoholics. Like, there's no way that could be me. So mm. it might be that people, if they if they think of it in the, in terms of that, well, if it's a disease, that means I'm out of the. I don't have to worry about it. It's not going to be something that's going to affect me. That's only for that that group of person. Yeah, I think that's that's two very important points. So the first is exactly that it causes a problem. I mean, I drank very responsibly, mm. and that's one of the reasons I got into difficulties. You know, as I say, I was waking up for the weeks and months before I went to Iraq, having alcohol every morning and all day. Wow. Now, that was because I was thinking, among other things, hang on, I am I think I was a sort of late 20s at the time, mm. and I'd been drinking since I was 14, so I was getting on for 15 years drinking, wow. and I didn't have a problem, you know, I could stop, so yeah. I was an alcoholic, so that's fine, I'm not alcoholic, I can drink and drink and drink, safe in the knowledge I can never become addicted to it. Mm. That was one of the reasons I got into difficulties, and I think that's true for most people. If you think you're safe, you've got no reason not to drink away and enjoy it. Yeah. Why not? Why would you even bother to moderate? Um, so, yeah, I think that's completely right. And then also you were talking about, um, and we touched on this earlier, about alcohol and sleep, which also made sense to me when I think about it. When Because even now, in sub- being a sober person, if I don't sleep <laughs> well, I'm not at my best. No, no. And I had no idea that alcohol was affecting me that way, that alcohol was just completely messing up my sleep. Yeah, I know. That's that's a terrible thing. And I think that's, to be honest, for me, I I really love my sleep. I've been in the military. I've been through too many times where I've not got enough sleep. And I mm-hmm. just really appreciate a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. And for me, making that connection between the disturbed sleep and the alcohol consumption was a, a nail in the coffin for my drinking days, frankly, mm-hmm. um, because it's so important. And I think the key is there's a lot we as human beings do not know about sleep there's certain different types of sleep and we go through different cycles and it's all theoretical no one really knows why we go through this stage or what this stage does and they've done tests with rats where if they take away one of the stages the rats die within a few weeks but we really don't understand but all i would say is what must be the case is the sleep patterns that occur naturally are the ones we need and they're the most beneficial ones for us. Now what alcohol does is completely disrupt them. It puts you into a certain kind of sleep. Basically you have deep sleep and REM sleep and it goes mm-hmm. through certain cycles and alcohol completely messes them up. You go into deep sleep for the first five hours or so but you have no REM sleep mm-hmm. and it's the REM sleep where they did the test with rats and found that if they take away the REM sleep they die within a few weeks. 
But then after the five hours of deep sleep, you don't go into deep sleep at all. So it's possible for people to go to bed after drinking and sleep eight or ten hours, spark out, but they never wake up feeling as energised and refreshed as they would do if they'd not drunk the night before. Yeah. And I think the key there is even one drink will interrupt your sleep. So it's not a case that you can just say, I'll just have the one drink and I won't have a hangover the next day. I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but I hear so many times from people at work when they've gone out the night before and they say, oh, I'm not hungover, I'm just a bit tired. And I'm thinking yeah. the tiredness is a hangover from the night's drinking. Right. You're tired because you've been drinking. It, it's part of the hangover. It's not possible to have even one drink and get the sleep patterns that would occur naturally. Isn't so, that interesting? Yeah. I always remembered that too, is of uh, stumbling into work the next day after a hard night's drinking and not sleeping. And I guess I, I could do it at the time because I was younger. I don't even know if I could manage to live through anything like that now, but I somehow... No, that's it. Yeah. I well, think the effects of the effects of not sleeping are accumulative. Mm. I mean, I've got young children now, so I mean, we, we quite often have our nights disturbed. And yeah. one night, if they're up, I'll, you know, I'll go into work the next day and I'm fairly okay. But when it starts to get to night two, three, four, you really start to struggle. And that's the problem with, not so much for binge drinkers, but certainly for people who drink smaller amounts, but regularly, mm. they just never quite get back on top. And the other thing with drinking is, sleeping is almost like a habit. If you disturb your sleep all the time, you don't get back to it for a few nights. So if you're a regular drinker and you're constantly disturbing your sleep, if you say, right, I'm stopping now on day one, that night, you're not going to sleep properly. It usually takes between four and five days to the sleeping habit to go back into the natural cycle. And of course, you know, with the weekend drinking culture, who actually stops for long enough to one, repair their cycle, and two, to get however many nights you then need to catch up on the lost sleep. Yeah. But we tend to just view it as, you know, as we get older, we do have less energy, we feel more tired, and it kind of just exaggerates that aging process anyway. So we tend to just take it as part of life. But it's not until you stop and start to regain that lost ground that you really realize what a difference it makes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it certainly does. I actually have had some sleeping problems recently that have I've overcome just because of re reducing some stress at work. I had my work situation okay. changed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I find myself now at work better able to deal with everything because I sleep better. I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, that's absolutely the case. I mean, I, I think it was Stephen King and he, he sort of compared sleep to that's when it's almost like your mind how your body digests food you know you put all these different types of food in and your body digests it takes what it what it wants from it and gets rid of the waste yeah and he sort of describes sleep as all the experience you have and the problems you have it's how your brain digests all those things and makes sense of it and i think that's absolutely true because i mean i know quite often i you know going to work and there's always I, I do an office job but there's an awkward email and i you know i just don't know what to do with it quite often i just make myself read through all of it and then just forget about it mm. and then go to bed and it's quite often you wake up the next day you go and sit down and you think oh it's you know maybe not that easy to deal with but it's x y and z and you just get on and do it mm -hmm. so i absolutely agree and i think that's yeah that's another very key thing that you don't have if you're constantly messing around with your sleeping pattern yeah so when you um when you were writing this book or or the, you were re, you did like if I you were doing two things you wrote it based upon your research but also yep. from your observation of your own drinking is that right yeah oh yeah absolutely and like I say that a lot of it's research and much of it is just my own observations and and sort of theories mm -hmm. as well and like as I say that a, a lot of it you can 
you don't need to delve into the science. You just need to go over it again and just question it a bit. You know, like I'm saying about that tolerance aspect. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone out there will accept that you build up a tolerance the more you drink. But not many people have taken the next step and thought, well, hang on, what does that actually, where does that lead us? Yeah. Does that, where does that take us? It's almost like the, you know, when you see the old films of the unsolved crime and the <laughs> detective takes out the old file and just works over it again and again and again until they start unraveling it. And it's almost like that. It's just looking for those points that just don't particularly add up and make sense and trying to work out what it actually means. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the fading effect bias that goes along with the whole cycle here? Because I was, when I were, was reading that, um, it harkened back to my early meetings. I don't really hear this so much anymore, but people mm. used to talk about euphoric recall that somehow we remember it being better than it really was. Is that is that what fading effect bias is, or am I not yeah. quite getting that? No, no, that's that's it. That's exact, that's basically it. It's an interesting one um, because it's a uni- what they call a universal phenomena. It affects everyone on the entire planet, from us here in the Western world to you know people living in the jungles in the middle of Brazil or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what it actually is is over time your memory of something softens and becomes more pleasant than it actually was and that's Mm. why we have this thing of the word nostalgia but looking back on things and it's looking back on things and remembering them to be more pleasant than they actually were Mm -hmm. again it's psychology it's not an exact science the general accepted theory is it just helps us keep a positive outlook on life because you look back and things look good and rosy and it just helps us keep a positive self-image and keep going but whatever the reason is I suppose less relevant if you're looking at it purely in relation to alcohol and alcoholism. The fact of the matter is, if you have stopped drinking for months, years, whatever, right. you will be looking back on it and remembering it more fondly than when you actually experienced it. Yeah. And I, and, and is the answer to that just losing the desire to drink altogether? Yeah, I, well, I think losing the d- desire to drink is key. Um, but I think a lot of it is just... With a lot of this stuff, it's it's helpful just to know about just to it. Know it. Yeah, just to realise it's there, so that if you do find yourself sitting there, you know, thinking about, oh, that drink I had that I really knew when I was in holiday, and mm-hmm. you just need to bear in mind that it wasn't how you remember it. Right. It's just to just be aware that it's there. I mean, I think I say in the book that, you know, if I look through a magnifying glass at an ant, I don't jump out of my skin because there's a giant ant. <laughs> I know how a magnifying glass works, and I, right. just, I appreciate it's warping what I'm seeing. Exactly. I think just, re- just understanding that, knowing that it's there, is I think enough often to just make you. And again, it's just it's just a quick question of being, I think, a bit cynical about things and just questioning them and not taking them at face value. Yeah. If you have a memory of oh, I used to love drinking, then it's it's worth stopping and thinking what was so great about it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that makes absolute good sense. Um, it's counterintuitive to a lot of what you actually hear in AA, where people don't they they, they it's like the thinking doesn't really seem to help, but I think it does help to understand, you know, the behavior because so much of what we do as human beings is just, we just do it naturally. But if we really stop and think that, you know, we're an organism and this is what's going on and we've evolved to be like this, then it kind of gives you some control to say, Hey, okay, I understand what's going on. I understand why I'm having these thoughts, but it's not really Mm. real. It's not real. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I forget the name for something that they say when it's the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. 
But I think that's absolutely the case for alcoholism or any addiction. It's it's this massive, overwhelming, horrible thing that you can't deal with. But actually, when you stop and break it down into its constituent parts and start understanding it, it just makes the whole thing a lot more manageable. And you, if it's working properly, it's like an illusion. It's like going to see a magician and seeing the most amazing trick and being absolutely flabbergasted and amazed. Yeah. And then someone explaining how it works. Mm-hmm. And it just, okay, yeah, it's clever and it's this and this, but it's just someone doing something fairly clever with sleight of hand. Yeah. And it can it can burst the bubble. Yeah, uh, knowledge, I, I think, is really powerful. It's a little example. Um, it's kind of silly, but I used to be terrified on airplanes when, when you'd go through terrible turbulence, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, just, I hated that. <laughs> I just mm, no, I don't feeling. Yeah, but after then, then one day I kind of I just read a little bit about how airplanes work, you know, and mm. and for whatever reason, just understanding the whole concept of lift and and how and how the plane works, and as long as the nose is kind of going up in the up, I'm probably okay. You're okay. <laughs> kind of made me feel yeah. a little better. Next time I, I'm on a plane, I might not still be as happy as anything, but at least I understand what's going on, and I can tell exactly. myself. This is what's happening. I'm on a plane. This is safe. This is supposed to be what's going on. Yeah, exactly. It removes the panic, doesn't it? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. The knowledge is empowering at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. our audience here, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, they're they're mm-hmm. AA members, but they're free thinkers. They're um, okay. they're they're not into the religious aspect of AA at all. But they do. They go to AA meetings. Some of them go to traditional AA meetings. Some of them go to. Um, we have a lot of these agnostic secular AA meetings um, coming up all over the place right now. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're a little bit different than your typical AA. Um, person or AA audience. But what what is your overall impression of, of Alcoholics Anonymous? Um, how do you feel about about it at all? Do you have any opinions? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's excellent. Um, and frankly, there's nothing like talking to people who have the same problems with you. That was, I mean, I, I'm not a particularly communicative person. I'm in very yeah. many ways. I'm a sort of archetypal Englishman in that I'm fairly <laughs> cold and reserved. <laughs> But sitting down with people and talking to them and be, just being able to open up and because it's anonymous and they've had the same problems, it's, it's really, really extraordinary. Yeah. But the, where it fell down for me is, as I say, that, that sort of scientific side of it, the more understanding how it all fits together. And I couldn't just accept that there's, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people in the world and alcoholism is some kind of collective insanity. That right. had to be, it had to be explainable. Um, and to, to, to just give an analogy, when I, when I was in the parachute regiment, we went to Bryce Norton to do our parachute training, and obviously it's very nerve-wracking and all the rest of it. Sure. And one of the things we did before we jumped is they sit down with a parachute in a classroom and they explain how it all works. They explain the plane and the, the you know the, te- the wires that you hook up to and how the parachute opens and how it's packed and how fail-safe it is and uh-huh. all the rest of it. And that gives you the working knowledge to think basically what you just said that you did with when you were nervous about turbulence right it gives you the confidence in the actual physical side of it to think this is this is going to be fine i'm okay here right now when you first take off they had we were flying on in a c-130 and there was a couple of um color sergeants you know people have been in the army parachute regiment for like 30 odd years you know Uh really tough grizzled individuals and they opened the doors and these blokes just hooked up and jumped out laughing. And it was like, it, that filled you with confidence as well, because yeah. it was like seeing people who would, you know, just went for it. Yeah. And I kind of, for me, AA was like watching people do it and get on with it. And you oh. think, wow, I can do this. But equally, I needed that physical side of it. And I think everyone's different. Some people would yeah. be fine with just the one side. Yeah. 
but me and it sounds like you as well we need to understand the mechanics behind it as well yeah. that's the empowering thing for me was the mechanics and that's yeah. where I felt AA sort of let me down a bit I mean when I I remember the first time I opened a big book and I was like because it's online so it's all fantastic and I was uh-huh. sat down to read it um, and one of the things that sort of jumped out at me it's, it's just a few pages on the method and the rest of it's personal stories and the right. personal stories are inspiring right but they don't have the information. They right. don't, you know, they weren't explaining to me why I could stop drinking for two months and always go back to it. I couldn't understand why I constantly return to it. Yeah. That um, was fur- infuriating with me too, actually, in the very beginning, because I was, I was really wanting a, a, an answer, but I just kind of fell in line with the, oh, you'll, the mystery will unfold for you. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a joke with no punchline ever being delivered, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, can we talk a little bit about the quitting process? Because you went into some good detail about that. You talked about the physical withdrawal from alcohol and how for most of us, it's not that dire that there is a certain group of us that have it so bad that we it could be life threatening. But for most of us, we go through this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The the, how it works is stimulants usually start to outweigh depressant effects of the alcohol for most of us after about five hours so after about five hours from your last drink that's when the withdrawal will kick in <clears throat> that's often that's often why you go into deep sleep for the first five hours and five hours after the last drink yeah it's okay. roughly that it's kind of it's not an exact science with alcohol because uh-huh. we drink it and if we've eaten some of the alcohol will sink right. into the food and that will be digested overnight so it's, it's not an exact science but roughly five hours after your last drink the withdrawal will kick in um, and then it escalates on and on and on throughout the day and it sort of tails off after about 24 hours. And then when you get sort of 48 hours is sort of the cutoff time for most of it. All the stimulants sort of going out of your system by then. Um, and that really is the, you know, the, the main of it. And if you think about it, most of us suffer the worst of the withdrawal even when we're drinking. Yeah. Because many drinkers don't have morning drinks or even lunchtime drinks. Lots of people just drink in the evening. Right. Now, if you finish drinking at let's just say hypothetically midnight uh-huh. and you start drinking again six the following evening you've already gone through 18 hours of withdrawal yeah so you're you're through the vast majority of it at that point and a lot of it you um, go through while you're asleep yeah exactly the worst of it is while you're actually in bed anyway and asleep yeah um so the, the actual physical side of it and even in the very worst i mean it, it's obviously it's all to do with amounts you know if you're yeah. drinking three to four bottles of spirits a day that alcohol is going to take far longer to get out of your system the stimulant's going to take far longer. But even in the absolute worst case, the alcohol and stimulants are out of your system in five days. Mm-hmm. So even for the most chronic alcoholic who's been drinking life-threatening amounts of alcohol every day for years and years and years, after five days, the physical withdrawal is done. That's okay. the end of it. Okay. And that's good information for somebody to have when they're, when they're, when they're stopping. And you even talk about this in your book. You, you're, you're writing about this and you're telling people, you know, if you're still drinking... It's okay. Go ahead and read this book. You know, um, yeah. You know, to, as a way to understand what's going on. Um, I guess you don't want them to be totally trashed to where they can't understand what they're reading. But no, might... no, it's a bit of a fine line. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, you have to understand it. But yeah, so it's kind of helping yeah. prepare them for what's going to happen when one does stop. That it's not yeah, as terrifying so. as you might think it might be. Yeah, I think so. And I think the other the other key is when when we 
thinking about stopping drinking or even when we're sober and we're facing a bit of a wobble, we tend to sort of take a bit of a carrot and stick approach for it. With the stick, the first stop for most people and they start thinking of the horror mm. of their drinking years and how terrible it is and how they can't control it, blah, blah, blah. That's, the, that's what I could think of was the stick. And the carrot is the life of alcohol, the good sleep, the lack mm-hmm. of the relationship problems, the self-respect, all the rest of it. And we tend to focus on those two. But what we never look at when we're thinking of either stopping or when we're sober and facing a bit of a wobble is the good side of drinking, what we perceive as the benefits of drinking. Now, on the one hand, that's a bit illogical because we don't drink for the bad side of drinking and we don't drink because of the good side of sobriety. We drink because of the supposed benefits of drinking. So if we're looking at stopping, that should be our first stop. That should be what we're looking at. And I think if you delve into all the science behind it, you start to realise that these supposed benefits drinking are illusions. And, you know, when I'm talking about before, Mm -hmm. if you're drinking the night after or the morning after you've had drinks the night before, the actual benefit is you're just counteracting the stimulants. Now, those stimulants wouldn't be there if you hadn't drunk. There you go. So you're actually drinking to feel as if you'd never drunk in the first place. Yeah. So it's an illusion. Yeah. And I think you can explode that aspect of it. You can address those issues. I enjoy a drink. Do I actually enjoy a drink when you're actually drinking? Mm-hmm. Because it, it helps. If you actually sit down with a drink and drink it and see how it actually makes you feel, is it that, you know, is it worth giving up your relationships, your wife, your children, your house, your job, your life for? You can actually concentrate on that thing. And I think that's one of the key things. I mean, certainly for lots of people, if you said to them, you have to stop drinking and then read the book, they'd never read it. Right, yeah, yeah. But equally, I think it can be very, very helpful for people to actually stop and while they're drinking, look at that key point. Why am I drinking? Forget the bad side of drinking and forget the good side of sobriety let's look at the real key here which is what i think is why i'm getting out of alcohol right so i think that's one of the reasons as well if you know i would never say to someone to start drinking if you stop drinking you're reading the book for god's sake don't start again right but certainly if you're drinking i think it can help to really you know sit down and, and look at those look at those things someone actually contacted me on the website um and in the book i sort of and i think they mentioned it in the big book as well but that experiment of actually drinking what you'd normally drink in the night mm-hmm. actually starting far earlier in the day and sitting through those five hours to see if you know to see if it because we've, we've got this bizarre view of alcohol mm-hmm. where we sort of kind of think for normal drinkers they drink it they feel slightly relaxed slightly intoxicated and then it wears off with no ill effect right and so what i say to people is okay put it to the test because uh-huh. as you said yourself, we're asleep. We drink through up to bedtime and then we go to bed and we sleep through it. But, right. you know, if you drink four or five hours before bed, start that drinking at 11 in the morning. Yeah. Stop at four in the afternoon and then take the next five hours and see how you feel. And someone emailed me that contacted me through the website and said it was an absolute eye-opener because she started to feel really awful and terrible. Wow. And when you do finally have that drink, it really shows you what a huge thing it is. It's, it, you know, it's really worth doing. If you are drinking yeah. it and you, you're not sure if you have a problem, I yeah. would say do that. Yeah. because it's an eye opener that is interesting another thing you mentioned which i which i love and i always always liked it uh you mentioned uh if somebody how does somebody know if they do have a problem and just the question itself is indicative that you might perhaps have a problem because if you didn't yeah, have a problem absolutely. you wouldn't even have to sit around and wonder about it would you yeah exactly i think that's true i think yeah i mentioned in the book if if you're thinking about it it's something you're giving thought to and you're sure about that by definition is a problem yeah so you're obviously is. concerned about it and i think the it's it's just human nature. People don't 
whatever your view of whether it's genetic or whatever, uh-huh. the, the accepted thing is you don't become alcoholic from the off. And it's usually anything between 2 and 20, but usually, you know, 10, 12, 15 years of drinking mm. before it really takes a hold. Mm. Now, I mean, that in and of itself is just indicative of, yeah. you know, oh, I've lost my train of thought there. Um, no, I know what you're saying. I also wanted to ask you, though, about when the, the process of quitting. And one of the methods that you touched upon was the Alan Carr method. Yes. Yeah. What is involved with that? Alan Carr, I think he wrote his books back in the 80s, and he it was all to do with cigarette smoking. Okay. Um, and he developed a method of quitting smoking. Um, and I won't go through all the detail of it, but basically it was to, and again, he recommended smoking while you actually read the book, or he, mm. he started off with clinics, and you just go to the clinic and he talked you through all aspects of smoking. And basically how it worked was, it was to get you into a position where you realise that there was no positive to smoking, there was no reason to do it. Mm-hmm. And I won't go into all the ins and outs of it, all the rest of it, but yeah. and it worked fairly well. And what people were finding is, you know, you stop smoking, you have only how many weeks or months of misery and withdrawal and all the rest of it. People were quitting with nothing, no problems at all. Wow. And it became, it's kind of, you know, a bestseller and it's been continuing to sell very well. But I, I read Alan's um, autobiography once and he was invited to a addiction conference in Vienna or wherever it was and he went there um, and he was sort of saying I've got this fantastic method but they were saying well how does it work and he I think he, he described it as one of his greatest missed opportunities because he couldn't actually articulate why it worked mm. why explaining why there's no benefit to something is so empowering and why it can release the addiction mm-hmm. and that was another thing I mean I stopped smoking using his method years ago mm-hmm. and it just got me interested in the whole thing and reading into it further and further yeah um, and that's, I think, the key thing, and that's what I was going back to before. If you can deal with the reason you do it rather than the reasons you shouldn't do it, that's really getting to the key of the problem, and that's yeah. what you need to do to really exercise it. Man, I quit smoking after after being sober for 10 years. Okay. And that, oh, God, that quitting smoking was so hard. But I used um, I used uh, nicotine gum, you know, okay. to yeah. help me through the, the rough spots. But I had no idea what I was in for because, um, man, it seems like a smoking affected every part of my body, my appetite, mm. how I digested things. Every, I, I felt like I had the flu for a while. It was awful. Oh, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so, yeah. I quit. <laughs> I don't smoke anymore. I have a long time. <laughs> well done. <laughs> okay. So um, what kind of feedback? I, I was kind of curious, too, though. Uh, William, when did you write the book? How long has it been out? It's almost exactly two years, just over oh, two years. okay. So it's kind of... I mean, what I did, I, I sent it out to a few agents and just didn't really get any interest. And I self-published it on Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, so all you can really do is just give copies away. So you, uh-huh. you're allowed to do like three days every quarter where you give copies away. So I just did that uh-huh. um, and just left it. And it's kind of kicked up more and more just from, I think, word of mouth. Yeah. So it's, it's just being recommended. I mean, I've got no great resources to advertise it countrywide or anything. Sure. So it's just, yeah, people seem to be recommending it and it's sort of slowly increasing. And what kind of feedback uh, have you been getting from it? It's all good so far. I mean, you've probably seen on, as I say, the Amazon mm-hmm. um, 
reviews, there's, there's reviews on the US and UK site, they're different when you put a review, I didn't realise this, but when you put a review on Amazon, it's only oh. put it on the whole world, it's only for that country. Okay. So there's reviews on um, the US and the UK site, and I've got some people have left some feedback on the website, and it's all almost exclusively very good. Yeah. But, I mean, I say at the end of the book, please do contact me and let me know what you think of it, but most people don't. So uh-huh. I think on average, um, I get, one person contacting me for roughly every 35 sales uh-huh. so it's always kind of raised the concern that <laughs> is it only one in 35 people that find it useful and the other 34 think it's a load of old nonsense yeah or is it just that you know many people don't leave reviews and i kind of i'm, I'm hopefully it is representative of positive because people do leave bad reviews on amazon so I yeah think i think so i do rubbish. yep i do yeah, think so. so i think most people probably don't leave reviews and i bet you most people People like to complain more than they like to give compliments. Yeah, that's yeah. Hopefully, that's true. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, so 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 far, it's all been all been very positive, which is good. Yeah. So I sort of had in my mind that I was fairly convinced what I was writing was correct, but you know, <laughs> there's lots of things in life where we think we're right and other people disagree with us. That's, that's I the world think it's a living. great resource to have. I um I've got it on my Kindle, and like I say, I read it all in one sitting. I just really really liked it. It made sense to me. Um, because you know, stopping drinking drinking is something that was a really huge deal for me when I went through it at the time. It was a real crisis and it Mm. was nice to be able to kind of look back on it and kind of understand what was going on. But I was also thinking about the people that I meet today who are Mm. stopping for the very first time and that would be a nice resource for them. I've actually ordered a hard copy so I could bring it and give it to people too. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I really do hope that's the case. As I say, part part of the, when I was writing, I was thinking a lot of the book is the mechanics of drinking. Mm -hmm. And, And then I go through the various methods and why they work and the good points and the bad points and bring together what I think is the best method, Mm -hmm. taking parts of other methods and all the rest of it. Um, But I was always, you know, for me, that's what I needed. But I know some people want a more spiritual approach or this or that. Mm -hmm. And I was, while I was writing, I was thinking it could fall flat on its face because ultimately people might say this is all very interesting but it doesn't help me but I think it helped me and I'm convinced it does help people so I think understanding the problem is is 90% of conquering it yeah no I I think so you know there's somebody you should I'll send you a link to his website I wonder if you know this person he's um his name is John Stewart J-O-N Stewart and he is from Brighton Oh, right. Okay. Do you know him? He, he. I've not heard of him. No. He is a very interesting guy. He um he has a website. I think it's called Leaving AA. Um, I'll mm. have to send you the site. But anyway, he um he is uh a, a, he teaches um like culture at a university in England. He's a professor okay. and he has read a lot and he he does a lot of um, lectures on alcoholism and he's oh, really okay. into the science behind addiction and he's and he's he wants people to be aware of all the different modes of treatment. He one thing that he proposes a lot is the Sinclair method which is controversial for a lot of the people in AA but anyway he's really into that I might send you a link because I think that you might find him interesting and some of the things that he has written about is interesting no please do I'll be very interested to have a look at that fantastic a lot of a lot of interesting things happening right now out there um i think that there's a real opportunity um internationally to kind of modernize alcoholics anonymous a lot of 
books are being written like yours that are that are helpful to people having the internet where people can just you know listen to a podcast or go to a blog um, and and learn and reach out and connect with other people th- these are all I think real positive developments that oh absolutely yeah I mean communications getting better and better I mean as I say when I was you know when I was at university and wanted to look into alcohol it was a question of going down to the medical yep. library but now it's all it's on the internet virtually yep. the entire knowledge of the human race can be yeah. and and connecting with the with other people that are looking for that having the same situation as you're having is really nice to be able to connect Absolutely. with people like that as well. Very interesting yeah. stuff. So. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed this. Um, thank you very much for for participating and uh, and for writing this book. Um, we're gonna go, I'm gonna go ahead and link it, link it on our site so that people will be aware of it and i would like to write a review of it as well fantastic um, no that's that's really good of you thank you and, and as i say I'm, I'm always interested to hear from people lots and lots of people don't get in contact yeah um but i yeah i ask for anyone who's found it useful or even don't like it for any reason please do drop me a yeah, line to the website <laughs> okay really like to hear from people yeah yeah, absolutely. It's a great website too, by the way. And I hope that you continue writing. You're really a great writer. I, I, I yeah, I kind of with the blog, I've sort of I've tried not to write unless I've got something to say. So hence, mm-hmm. there's sometimes some gaps. And I kind of I know some people say with blogs, oh, you should try and get something out every week or every however often. Yeah. But I don't want to just write for the sake of it. Sure. And I try and sort of limit it to when I've thought of something a bit useful to say. Yeah. Um. So. That's probably I will carry on. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be posting this here real soon, uh, William. I think that'll be not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday is what I'll be shooting for. Fantastic. Thank you, John. That's amazing. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good Have a good evening. You too. Thanks, John. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon enough with another episode for your listening pleasure. Until then, don't drink, go to meetings, and help others.